So let's put it another way. House prices are the same as they were in 1975. What, Kevin? What are you talking about? House prices are the same as they were in 1975. House prices are currently 242 ounces of gold. House prices in 1975 were 242 ounces of gold. So what are you... Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Nadelstein. I'm joined today by the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner, and our two guests for the day, Kevin Wadsworth co-founder of NorthStarBadCharts.com. He's got a background in military meteorology. Never heard of that before. We're going to dive into that today. And co-founder Patrick Karim. Folks, how are you doing today? We've got a nice big call with some of the finest experts, gold, silver, precious metals, and charting. Uh, Let's start with you. Kevin, what the heck is military meteorology? uh, I spent a lot of time of my career uh, briefing pilots, uh, the Royal Air Force here in the UK. And uh, I guess a lot of people don't realise when they switch their television sets on and see the the weather forecast, the meteorologist standing there saying it's going to be dry, wet, windy, whatever. But uh, there are a lot of organisations that need a lot more detail than that. And uh, the military are one of them. They use uh, detailed forecasting to enable them to uh, complete their, uh, their missions, their sorties. Clearly, weather conditions at, uh, at ground level and also high up in the atmosphere are very important for for fast jet pilots, for bombers, for uh, making raids into uh, enemy territory and that kind of thing. So turbulence, icing, uh, really, um, that's what led me to what I'm doing, actually, the technical analysis side of things, because I realized after 34 years of doing that and predicting the future by gathering evidence from the atmosphere uh, that you could do exactly the same with uh, price charts for gold, silver, and uh, as it turns out, anything, including cryptocurrencies, you apply the same evidence-gathering technique. What you end up with is the same thing as a weather forecast. You end up with a probabilistic outcome that tells you what is most likely to happen, not what will happen, but what is most likely to happen. So when I was standing there briefing the pilots, they wanted to know if it was likely to be suitable for them to com- complete their missions. And uh, it's the same as uh, saying if gold is likely to meet uh, it's target near $3,000 or whatever. So that's uh, that's what that's all about. <laughs> and Patrick, let's jump to you. I know you weren't a military meteorologist, but what was your background? How'd you come to charting? Goodness. Uh, well, most of uh, my I've, my career was uh, as an IT specialist, uh, Linux, uh, AIX, Unix. And uh, I totally retired from that uh, like maybe two years ago now. So yeah, with Kevin there, we started NorthStarBadCharts.com, but I've been chart trading like since... 2006, but right before that, I was like everybody, you know, I had uh, some money coming in and then I just Google what to invest in. Of course, you find all the penny t- stock scams and all the, the the news related type of advice. But if you go on Yahoo Finance and then you see charts are like three months, the default, you can see anything, you know, and it was just uh, like a miracle. I didn't get wiped out multiple times. And then one day I just read the uh, Stan Weinstein's secrets for profiting in bull and bear markets. And he just had a way of saying, look, it's not the news. The news is often late. Look at the charts, analyze the, the price structures. And you're going to probably get in when the insiders are starting to buy. They tell the secretary, the secretary started buying, and then starts cascading out. The price will start creeping, creeping upwards. And that's when you get in, right? And often at the bottoms, there's just no news or bad news. And at the top, that's when you get all the good news close to the top, right? Sometimes you get good news. The price still goes up a little bit. 
but it's it's just a contrarian fade the news but always make sure the price charts are aligned with you because sometimes in the bull run you will have good news and uh good price action you know but the day the price action starts fall, falling down then you have to bail so that's why the charts are i love the charts it's so simple i know that i know nothing i've realized like you know anybody could look one year in the past and say oh i've learned this oh uh, this thing i didn't consider that maybe moving the markets you know some macro you know story or narrative but if you know that you learned something that you didn't know a year ago, then it's kind of dangerous going forward because if you're going with what you know now and you know what you know now, you're missing some elements that you'll learn later on. All that stuff for us, it's like in the charts, you know, it's discounted appropriately over time. And I just fell in love with it. So I do that all the time. So let's jump into media coverage for a second. And Kevin, I'll start with you. So sometimes it feels like media coverage has an impact on an asset class by influencing the asset class. I'm thinking, let's say, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. There's an ETF approval. It kind of feels like the media is pushing the asset class. And in other asset class, it feels like kind of the other way around, where the media just follows a trend. Asset class hits an all-time high, and the media is like, I guess we got to cover this. So do you see media kind of following trends or influencing them? Kevin, we'll start with you. I'm very fortunate because technical chart analysis means that all of that kind of stuff, really, I've been able to block out of uh, all of my decision-making processes because, as Pat was alluding to there a moment ago, the price chart um, actually factors in everything that is known now about what is likely to happen. It factors in everything that is known about, uh, you know, that people are expecting for the future. So what I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of stuff, a lot of information out there about, let's say, Bitcoin that I don't know, you don't know, a lot of investors don't know. It, there's a lot of stuff that we do know. There's a ton of stuff that we don't. All of that is priced into the chart and means that we really don't need to spend a lot of time researching the background narratives and the background stories. You can clearly identify, and I haven't really got time to, to explain in detail in this particular interview, but there are a, a number of techniques, just like in weather forecasting, if you're trying to predict whether it's going to rain over your area a few hours from now you have to gather the evidence and the evidence comes from what's the wind direction what's the atmospheric pressure what's the humidity um what are the upper atmospheric drivers and you put all of that information all that evidence together and you end up with a likelihood of having uh, a thunderstorm or rain or whatever over your location and it's exactly the same with price charts you can bring momentum you can bring uh, volume you can bring a whole host of indicators, um, trend indicators. You can use classical TA. You can use Fibonacci extensions and retrace. What I'm trying to say is there's a million different techniques, and all of them are valid. None of them provide the magic answer or the magic bullet. But when you bring them together, what you end up with is a is a um, a probabilistic determination of what's going to happen. Now, there are times when the odds are 50-50 and you might as well flip a coin, in which case technical analysis at that particular point in time is less helpful. But there are points in time when everything aligns and you get a cluster of evidence and the price passes either upwards or downwards through that cluster of evidence. At that point, the evidence is very strongly in favour of either shorting or certainly not being long if it's dropping or the reverse if it's breaking to the upside and you take a long position. So there are clearly identifiable points. And, and, and what I'm getting at here is that by using technical analysis, it kind of negates the need to do a lot of the background research, a lot of the um, 
sort of digging uh, beneath the surface to get the narratives and get the stories and who's the chief executive and what's going on with the company's finances and all that kind of stuff. Yes, that's that's that part of the story, but that's what's driving the price, whether you know it or whether you don't. All of that information is built into the price chart. And for that reason, you can use mathematics and statistics and probabilities to give yourself an edge in 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 trading and investing and that's what that's what we do so my sort of short gone a long way around it but my answer to your question is that um you know i just park all of the narratives to one side and focus purely on the price chart and it works very well for us and keith i always found that very interesting when you see something like a price like Kevin mentioned, you don't even have to really know what's going on in the background, right? Like I see that oil or gasoline prices have increased in my area. And I say, well, you know, is that because the Houthis are blocking a certain channel in the sea? Is that because, you know, Biden is, you know, selling the sp uh, strategic petroleum reserve? Is that because there's an extra tax in my area? Who knows? I mean, right? You just kind of see it in the price action. Keith, can you kind of uh, explain a little bit about like bid, ask, how prices are formed, what happens when you see a price and, and what should we think about prices and kind of how they convey information? Well, that's a, uh, a broad set of topics. Um, I mean, obviously, when you see the price of gasoline moving up, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with what um, uh, Kevin and Patrick were saying. That takes into account everything that happened. Well, maybe the Houthis are blocking uh, oil going this way, but there's a pipeline that takes it that way. And so... It's not neutral, and even though the news says, "Oh my God, they're going to drive the price of oil up to uh, uh, you know, or gasoline in California up to fifteen dollars a gallon," and it doesn't happen because the media, you know, just overestimated or whatever. Um, but you make a really interesting point that um, in any live market, there isn't one price but two prices. There's bid and offer, and the bid price is um, potential buyers. That are standing ready if they get their price that's what's what they want and it's not worth more to them than that for whatever reason so suppose we're talking about crude oil who's the bid it's a marginal refiner that says okay if at this price knowing what he's going to sell the um uh you know the petroleum distillates for this is what he's willing to pay for uh for crude right now and until the price on his distillates moves his distillates markets move, then he doesn't want to pay more or less. And the offer price is the marginal producer of crude um, who knows how much his inventory is, knows what his supply looks like, knows when the next, you know, let's say ship or tanker is, is coming and says, okay, I'm willing to do it. This. So if you come to market and you need to sell right now, you're going to hit somebody's bid. If you come to market and you need to buy right now, you're going to hit somebody's offer or ask price. And then the counterintuitive thing is that the ask is actually formed by the competition amongst the buyers. Because every buyer who comes and hits an ask actually lifts the, the, the ask price or the offer price. And every uh, seller who comes to the market presses a bid price. And so it's the competition between the marginal uh, sellers that are, hit, are pressing bids and the competition between the marginal buyers that are lifting offers. And then there's the market maker that will tend to maintain a consistent spread. So if you're pushing the bid, that will tend to pull down you know, the offer as well, although obviously it's a little bit elastic and there's a little bit of lag there as well. How do you think about the significance of things like liquidity or spreads and especially volume? Because 
obviously certain asset classes have different levels of liquidity and volume. Does that really tend to matter? How should a layman or a retail beginner investor think about something like volume? Does it does it really matter or not so much? It definitely matters. It definitely matters. And on two on two aspects, of course, we're not financial advisors, but often what comes to people's attention and then to mind penny stocks, oh, 10,000% gains. Like, you know, but the stuff starts from a penny. It goes up to a dollar. I don't know. It's 10,000%. It looks great, right? People always imagine, oh, I'm going to put 100K there. And bam, I have a Lombo, right? But the liquidity in those stocks, the volume might make so the spread between like a, the, the 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 bid and the ask, it'll never get filled because if you dump too much money because and you really want to get in, then you're gonna consume all, all the ask. And after that, it's just gonna, you know, the, the price is gonna go out. So you you're gonna get slippage, you're not gonna get the price you wanted to. That 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 could be a huge percentage. And also on the exits, if you're in a stock, a small cap stock, which uh like, you know, you have 100K, but after that, uh, the daily volume, I don't know, it's, it transacts 10,000K and there's a problem and you want to sell, man, you might not even be able to sell at the click. You're, you're, you're stuck there. You're stuck. Bam, bam. You could be 30% lower by the time you get out. So for, for noobs or for anybody, guys, just go with high liquid stocks, the highest liquidity, the ones where you could dump a million, a hundred thousand and you won't even hurt the, the the spread, right? You're going to get filled instantaneously pretty much at the price that you want. Just like the Forex market. I used to love trading Forex because that's the most liquid market in the world. At four, four decimal points to the right, man, you get filled. It'd be like, you know, maybe the commission depends what broker you have. It'd be, it'd be tiny. So you get great fills in and out, precision. So the volume is super important just for the, the technical aspect of trading. And you'll see that you don't make money off High, the percentage moves you do in the stock, like people clickbait you into, into thinking because an instrument goes up hundred percent. I can make as much money with an instrument that moves 3%. It's all a question of position size where you could anchor a sell stop safely to have a bigger position size. And then your reward where your target is. Because look, if it'd be all about percentage moves in stocks, nobody would be playing Forex. Forex barely moves, yet people are making tons of money because they have huge position size, highly liquid, able to go in and out with low spread. But also volume, or maybe Kevin's going to talk about this, is the volume, the amount of transactions you have. So in TA, you have a lot of people like in a base, the price is going to stay in a range for a long time. And that's volume. So we call that volume profiling. You'll see it on some of my charts. It's like a mountain on the right-hand side. So often people see volume per candle, but I could have volume per price. So that tells me something. Often it's going to go, and it's going to look like a pyramid. As soon as the price starts sliding above that high volume node, it's like an, the equilibrium that was maintained for five years, 10 years, it's trying to rupture and the market's trying to find, it's going to try to slide to a new fair value somewhere else. We don't know, probably at the next resistance level. So the importance of volume is as soon as you start breaking out above volume per by price per price, then that's giving you clues that that volume node will become support and help you propel up. And on the contrary, if you have a huge topping pattern with a lot of volume and you're buying and you're hoping to have a target above that, it's like you're trying to go to cross through a, a freeway barefoot. You're going to get trampled, right? There's too, there's too much traffic It's and you're going to get just pushed back down. So that's the two ways uh, I think people could use volume is uh, for liquidity and for uh, uh, entry to make sure you're above it, which is it's support in that case, not resistance. So you have a higher probability of uh, having a successful trade. Kevin, I want to ask you, let's talk about volume. Let's talk about liquidity. So my understanding here is, you know, there's lots of people in a trade, 
in a way that kind of creates a thick band, right? And a, you're in the middle of a rubber band and sometimes it pushes really hard once you break out, you know, then maybe you're kind of in a different either volume pattern, you're, you're in a different area. So let, let's let you talk a second or two about volume, liquidity, how you think that affects trading. Yeah, you see, I, I look at it from, as Patrick does, from a technical uh, chart analysis point of view. I've got a scientific background. I'm trying to <clears throat> get the information out of the chart just the same way that I did with meteorology, looking at satellite pictures and looking at radar images and looking at the significance of that data. Now, Patrick described there that the volume um, builds up. It, when price spends a long time in a trading range, there's a lot of um, buying, a lot of selling going on. The volume is shown clearly on technical analysis charts there. But it's not just the volume that um, begins to define what's going on at that point, because you have a number of other technical indicators on the chart that you can display using um, you know, the, the type of technical chart analysis tools that people use. You know, TradingView, for example, is one. There are many others. And um, you can uh, identify those breakout levels as that volume builds up and produces that volume node that perhaps talking about. There's, um, it, it, you, you develop like a horizontal zone of resistance. It's like, it's like ice on a lake, okay? Imagine a, um, somebody pushes a beach ball. You've heard the analogy of beach ball underwater. Well, imagine the water's got a, a layer of ice across the top of it. Now, that's the volume. That's the volume resistance. And the longer price spends down, below that level and retests it and goes back down and retests it and goes back down, then the thicker that ice layer effectively is and you need more and more energy to push through it. But when that energy does build up to a, a sufficient degree and breaks through, then it really does, you know, sort of release that potential energy. It's all about physics. You know, my background is in mathematics and physics and it's it still surprises me to this day that, you know, technical chart analysis actually works in the same way that, that physics does, you know, you can talk about potential energy, kinetic energy, uh, measured moves, you know, very often the depth of the downside move below that layer of ice, below that volume resistance is matched by the move that occurs when it breaks through that volume resistance layer of ice, whatever you want to call it, and you get a measured move. And the number of times that the price moves up the exact same amount, give or take, that it was compressed underneath that layer it's, it's just incredible. And and very often you can use a, a variety of techniques to identify where your target area is likely to be. Fibonacci is one, Fibonacci extensions. There are a lot of classical technical chart analysis techniques that do the same thing. And the important point, and I'll stress this for anyone who's starting out with looking at charts and stuff, is not to use one individual technique. Because if you start using one individual technique and you think, oh, this works or that works, it's a bit like a game of golf, you know, you, you work out what you've been doing wrong <laughs> and you hit the because you hit the ball decently once and then you go on to the next shot and you do exactly the same as you did last time, but it goes off into the rough somewhere. It's because it's a combination of things that have to come together, it, a whole series of different inputs that have to come together to um, give you the confirmation that that target is realistic and it's likely to be achieved. And, and that's the way I look at volume, the same way as I look at all of the other aspects of a technical chart it's all about the evidence and bringing together multiple pieces of evidence into that jigsaw puzzle and accepting the fact that sometimes you have to walk away from that chart walk away from the, the trade because there just isn't enough evidence it's not strong enough yeah okay it's going to move up or down of course it will but if you haven't got enough evidence to tell you which way it's going to go then your confidence levels are low and this is this is how weather warnings work we don't just issue a weather warning because we think bad weather's coming 
we issue weather warnings based on the level of confidence that also comes along with that forecast. So I don't know if in the United States you have the same technique, but here in the UK, we use colours, yellow, amber and red. A yellow weather warning is uh, there's some pretty bad weather coming. Amber weather warning is going to be pretty, you know, really bad. And red is, is life threatening and, you know, buildings are going to be destroyed and that kind of thing. So that comes from a combination of likelihood and impact. What's the impact going to be when the weather arrives? And how confident are you that's actually going to happen? And that's what results in the colour um, grading for that weather warning. And it's the same with technical chart analysis. How, what's your target and how likely is it to, to meet that target? And you bring those two things together with risk and money management, and then you've got a winning, a winning uh, formula there. Can you both share a time, we'll start with you, Patrick, where you're looking at a chart, the chart's kind of indicating, hey, you know, there's a, like a resistance level here, or it looks like the price might be, you know, finally breaking out from some band that you've you've seen, and your gut just went, that does not feel right to me. You know, <laughs> I see what the chart is saying, but the intuition, the gut felt something differently. Generally, do you guys kind of have a value in saying, hey, listen, I don't follow the gut, I do what the chart says, and I just try to stick to that? Or have there been times where you say, you know, I'm going to follow my gut and it, it's worked out? Patrick, we'll start with you. Goodness. Well, look, your, 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 your gut feeling, I, I know when I knew nothing at the beginning, when I didn't do charts, I did listen to my gut because I'd buy some crappy penny stock and at night and my heart was racing. And the next day I sold because it's, it's like my subconscious telling you, Patrick, you're doing something that you're, you're, you're not comfortable with. You don't have the whole evidence. I listened to myself. I exited. In the charts right now, if ever I have that gut feeling, we're going to have to re we review the evidence. It's either, it's not because my, it's because maybe there's a racial chart that we we didn't look at. It's like, uh, or we saw another racial chart two, three weeks back. Let's say gold's breaking out on its own nominal chart. It's breaking out. It's beautiful. Everybody's happy. It's breaking out. But then I remember two, three weeks ago, I looked at a chart and it wasn't, look, gold wasn't looking too good against money supply. It wasn't looking too good against SPX, but I forgot about it. That's my subconscious. If I have a gut feeling, it's my subconscious telling me, Ugh, I, I, yeah, but there was this racial chart. Should I dismiss it, ignore it? Should I look at it? Um, so it forces us to revisit the evidence, repop up the chart. You know, it's free. Anybody could look at it. And then after that, you could either dismiss that feeling as, okay, I have the ev objective evidence now. It's good. That feeling is going to dissipate. And if the evidence says, okay, well, it's more 50-50 chance now, we might decide not because of the gut, but because on the reviewed evidence, we'll say, okay, well, I rather an 80% chance than a 50% chance. And then we'll just like, you know, maybe not take the trade or maybe risk less than we would have normally have, uh, we would have uh, done something. But you need to always review the evidence. If you have a, a feeling, then it's better to see why, treat the symptom, treat, don't treat the symptoms, you, you can, but it's go at the root cause, understand why you're having that feeling of that gut feeling that you don't, you're not quite sure about that situation. So yeah, it's, um, that's how I'd answer that there. Find, find the root cause of why you're, you're not sure about that trade. And yeah, look, this is the best game in, in town. Once you understand the rules of chart trading, it's like, I don't have to swing at every pitch. You know, if you don't like that pitch, don't swing. It's your money. You're on the sidelines. It's not a lost opportunity. Often the newbies, oh, Patrick, you didn't play whatever Bitcoin. It went up 10,000%. Yeah, well, I don't care. I didn't lose any money. I was out. I was maybe making money with uranium with something else, you know? So there's no FOMO. And uh, stepping aside, there's nothing wrong with that at all, you know? Even if the price does go up after you stepped aside, it was still not wrong to exit because you could always re-enter. There's tens of thousands of instruments you could play, guys. So, um, 
yeah, it's like, you know, if you'd be able to marry a hundred women, you, you would, right? 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 <laughs> My girlfriend says no. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 the a great analogy, probably. <laughs> Yeah, if, if I'm not on the next Gold Exchange podcast, it's because my girlfriend has killed me. Uh, Kevin, let's jump with you. So let's talk a little bit about risk, intuition, because I know a lot of times we've talked with some other experts. Spencer Jacob from the Wall Street Journal has written some interesting books about retail traders and how generally they're kind of on the opposite sides of a lot of these trades that they really shouldn't be. Um, and, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, who's on the other side? Like, who is taking these really, you know, bad, bad deals, bad trades? Often it's dentists, uh, no offense to dentists, my dad's a dentist, uh, but it's people who kind of think they know what they're doing. They have no system whatsoever. How do you kind of think about risk? Do you tend to say, hey, listen, if you're a value investor, stick with value investing, You know, write yourself a little note and say, I will never do X, Y, Z. Just have some objective standard. If you're a momentum trader, you know, be a momentum trader, but just kind of taking emotion out of trading and, and, and managing your own assets and trying to have some objective rule, even if it's different than someone else's, trying to follow that plan. How do you think about that? <laughs> the biggest mistake I ever made when I started uh, trading and in investing was trying to catch the bottom with everything, catching falling knives. Oh, it's cheap. It's great. It's you know, it can't get any cheaper. Wrong, wrong, wrong again. <laughs> and uh, I quickly, luckily, I learned quite quickly because I, you know, the, the background that I've got, it's about the evidence. So, so in, in terms of when to invest and how to, um, how to sort of position yourself with risk in terms of risk there is a is that okay i'll give you a scenario um uranium for example post fukushima started to um tumble the spot price of uranium and the uranium miners took a dive and um probably somewhere around about 2014 15 uh, 16 even a lot of people would have been saying look uranium miners and uranium they've been going down for years they're I don't know, 70% down, 80% down, whatever. Um, this has got to be a good time to <clears throat> to get into, into uranium. Now, you know, it wasn't until 2019, 2020 when they finally bottomed. And having the technical chart to look at, this is where you talk about your gut. And your, your gut feeling sometimes comes from, you know, what you're influenced by, what you hear, what you read. Um, feelings that you get from the media and all that kind of stuff. And you ha having a technical chart means that you can completely kind of tune out of all of that because it was so clear back in 2019, 2020, that what was happening with the spot price of uranium and the uranium miners was a breakout. Now, the evidence doesn't change overnight. It doesn't change, you know, the click of your fingers. It changes gradually. And as an investor, it's down to your own personality and your own attitude to risk, at which point you want to start either scaling in or taking a position in whatever way you want to take your position all at once or bit by bit. But the evidence builds gradually, uh, a little bit like um, a truck hurtling towards you from you know, half a mile away. You can look at the truck when it's half a mile away and think, well, okay, it's coming in my general direction, but it's probably not going to hit me. And then it gets closer and closer and closer. And at some point you're like, oh, bloody hell, this thing's going to hit me. It's definitely going to hit me. The evidence is there. It's, you know, it's 20 feet away from me and it's going to mow me down. And it's the same with, with, with chart trading. The evidence builds gradually and it's at what point you want to pull the trigger and act on that evidence. So all of these pieces of key evidence that I've spoken about, about breaking above volume bases, breaking above resistance lines, breaking above 
the Ichimoku cloud, which is a very useful indicator, uh, seeing the distance from moving average move back above the zero line, uh, all of these things, they come together as a series of ticks that uh, tell you when to, you know, checks in the box, telling you when that particular stock is is turning bullish again or that particular sector. So it, it's a case of building the evidence. And then once it breaks out, you can catch the chunk of the move. You get the big move. As soon as it breaks out, you invariably get a significant move before it'll hit a resistance level and then cool off again. That's what happened in uranium. It had two and a half years or so pulling back um, and the pullbacks were in excess of 50%. And then we had a stage two continuation breakout. And that's what's just happened. The URA chart broke out again at around about $24 and it's now somewhere around about 30 last time I looked and progressing beautifully according according to our you know, our expected projections. So it's a, it's, it's a question of your own personality, your own trading style, what risks you want to take. And also, I should mention, applying careful risk and money management. You need to have a, a system where you identify your target, identify an entry point, identify a stop loss and your position size. If you don't do that, if you're not doing that, anyone watching this who isn't doing that, um, as I wasn't right at the very beginning, um, really, I would, I would, I'm not a financial advisor, but I'd strongly recommend that you, you read and learn about um, risk and money management. That's the most important part, Kevin. Yeah. It's, it's, look, it's, it's like a poker player, guys. They, if you go all in on every single hand, you're bound to go broke. You will. It's mathematical. You can't go in all in every single hand. So minimize the, the defeats, the drawdowns, live to fight another day, guys. And that's the hardest thing psychologically for somebody because they've married the narrative. They've married the chart. I did my due diligence on this company. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, sometimes the capital flows are way more powerful than that company. So great management. But if it happens, you're in a bear market for whatever sector, it's game over for you. I don't care who you are. The chances are if a company does do well in a sector where the capital flows are not going into it, it's a low probability event. You got lucky because most of the companies will track you know, like there's 80% of the companies in, a, let's say, the material sectors, they all look like those charts. Why do you think is that is? They all have different CEOs. It's because they're tracking the capital flows from way above that's overriding practically. And or you can make a case that the decision making by all these CEOs and all that stuff, it's practically symptoms of the capital flows. They're forced their hand to take these decisions to 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 survive, right? They have to cut margins. They have to raise prices. That's That's not coming from them there. They don't want to do that. It's coming from, you know, the higher forces, right? The inflation, purchasing power and all that. Sorry, I stole a little bit of a, but risk management, money management is the number one thing. And nobody teaches that. Nobody. CNBC doesn't talk about it. Nobody tells you you shouldn't risk more than 1% of your nav on a trade. Nobody tells you that. It was, it was fascinating talking to Peter Brandt the other day. And we had a chat with him about this. And he's a, a very long time investor, of course. And it, something that a lot of people don't realize is that you can lose, you can, you can have let's say three out of four of your trades can not succeed. And the one out of the four that succeeds covers more than covers the losses from those three. So you can have, you know, many, many more losses than victories and yet still be making gains on your portfolio. If you use careful risk and money management, it means effectively that, uh, you know, saying that a lot of people repeat, which is true, cutting your losers and letting your winners run. You know, you let your winning trades run to target and, you know any trades that start to turn against you and move in a, um, in a direction that you really didn't want and really didn't anticipate, then cut it with no more than let's say a one percent nav loss, uh, perhaps at most a two percent nav loss on on any single trade, 
So I think Peter uses even less than that. You know, he's yeah. spoken about using um, um, positions that have less less than one percent nav risk on on his trades. So you know, think about this really carefully because if you stand to lose five ten percent on a single trade because it's not going the way you want it to, then you're just doing that completely wrong. It's the second element to chart trading. The first element is identifying the probabilities of where that particular stock is going and having the probabilities slightly skewed in your favor. And you only need to skew them slightly in your favor. You don't have to be a genius. You just need to say, perhaps, you know, push the odds 70, 30, even 60, 40 in your favor, as opposed to a coin flip. And then if you marry that with risk and money management, then you can grow your nav substantially over a period of time. But Kevin, nobody, everybody wants to bet everything to be to have the Lambo. That's on, that's mm -hmm. what's happening on Twitter. You have to mm -hmm. bet everything. YOLO, remember YOLO? But you know, <laughs> anyways, that's what we're fighting against. Like, if I want to tweet with little likes, talk about risk and money management. It's a killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and talk about talk about um, uh, uh, an illiquid um, cryptocurrency going up a uh, ten thousand percent. Ah. <laughs> You'll get a million likes. You know, it's it's the world we live in, unfortunately. That, that's why, Keith. I love your your, your tweets there on Twitter on uh, Bitcoin. The paradox. Everybody wants it to go up because they want to make money, but then it's contradictory to being a stable fiat money, right? Because you're not supposed to go up eighty percent and down eighty percent, right? And it's like I love when you tweet stuff like that, man. I always, oh my goodness, you keep snaring <laughs> it perfectly. Is, is it money, or is it going up to millions of dollars? Because they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> and, exactly. if it's, and if it's if it's money, then it won't be going up, and therefore you don't have a reason to buy. And if it is going up, it precludes its use as money, and. Um, you know, they never, they never really engage with that. They say, well, Bitcoin is living rent-free in your head, or there's some way of sort of turning it into a personal, you know, attempt at personal attack. Um, but anyways, we're not yeah, talking I, about today. I, I do want to ask you about that because, you know, obviously we, we try to help people and say, hey, listen, you know, if, if something's going up 200,000%, is that really great for people holding it as money? You know, people think, well, this is, you know, um, a store of value, you know, whatever that means. And, you know, it's going up 2000%. I mean, okay, so if I find a stock or a crypto that goes up 2100%, is that a better store of value? I mean, you know, these aren't really great arguments. And, and like you guys mentioned, the percent gain isn't actually that important, right? It's kind of these underlying kind of fundamental principles is like, do you even want a high percentage gain? Does that mean the stock is volatile? Are you looking for volatility, right? Um, something well, if, if you're trading it, sure. But I was going to say, when people say store value and, and Bitcoin's going up, you know, 80,000% or whatever, I'm like, I always picture, you know, as a kid, you know, you get bottle rockets or something like that. And there's a little wooden stick and you put it in a little tube and you light the fuse and you get back. You know, if, even when it's going up, that's not a store. A store is a boring thing. Like, you know, um, all the houses in New York where I lived had uh, oil burners for heat in the winter. You know, there's a tank underground and then there's a little you know the pipe that's stuck up and that's where they'd fill it that's a store it's boring it's cold it's underground nobody ever thinks about it unless it's leaking and there's a problem and um it almost never leaks because you know they knew how to build a tank that didn't have holes in it and uh this thing that's going up like that even during that phase that's not a store that's something else and of course you know at least for for fireworks on the fourth of july you know what happens when it gets to the top there's a bang and then the stick and the leftover paper and, you know, whatever rubbish, you know, comes right back down. And um, now if you're trading in and you can time that, 
If your chart tells you that's going to happen, great, have at it. But don't tell me this is money. Don't tell me this is a store of value. Don't give me all the rubbish economics that um, the Bitcoiners uh, you know, give because none of that stuff is true. And as, I guess getting back to what you guys were saying you know, 20 minutes ago, it's, it's a narrative that people tell themselves uh, to maybe make themselves feel better along the way. You know, but there's no there's no validity to that. It's, it's um, you know, it's just a narrative, nothing more. And, and there's there's something else that I'll, I'll add to that. If you if you're talking about gold and you're talking about uh, currencies and you're talking about the stuff that we all need to buy on a daily basis, people will. I'll just I'll just make a simple statement here, which might um, drive the point home to a lot of people. House prices have gone up, right? House prices have gone up a thousand percent since 1975, at least a thousand percent. Wrong. No, they haven't. House prices have not gone up. A thousand percent since 1975. It's the value of your paper currency that you're purchasing that property in that is devalued essentially. So let's put it another way: house prices are the same as they were in 1975. What, Kevin? What are you talking about? House prices are the same as they were in 1975. House prices are currently 242 ounces of gold. House prices in 1975 were 242 ounces of gold. So what are you trying to tell me here? What's the currency? Are you telling me this paper stuff that is handed out by the US government, the British government, the Eurozone, is that is that our currency? Because if that's our currency, then everything around us that we need to, you, you know, that we need to survive, whether it's houses, food, clothing, all of the utility bills, they're seemingly going up and up and up and up, but they're not. It's an illusion. It's a complete illusion. Gold stands there throughout time, throughout history, throughout the centuries, and it just acts as, uh, people call it a pet rock. Well, what, what, what you just said there, Keith, is, is very true. It's, it's boring, it's tedious, it doesn't do very much, but hell, you know, if you, if you wanted to buy a house and you had gold back in 1975, you can get your house for the exact same amount of gold as it cost you back in 1975. So, you know, let's have a, you know, a proper conversation about what we mean about currencies and what should be a currency and what shouldn't be a currency? Well, Kevin and Patrick, I'll I'll do, good, do the good news, which is that monetary metals we pay a yield on gold, paid in gold. So gold actually does do something. It is not <laughs> a shiny pet rock anymore. Sorry, Warren Buffett. <laughs> um, so with that yield on gold, yeah. obviously, if you were earning from 1975, you could probably pay for a house by now in those ounces that you earned. But I really do like that point. And you know, uh, we say that a lot on, on the podcast. Hey, you got to think about gold as kind of the center of the monetary universe, all these kind of other paper products. Like you perfectly mentioned, you know, if you're living in Venezuela, did your house really appreciate 1000%? Or is it possible that the Venezuelan Bolivar is now pretty much worthless? Well, yeah, you know that's the funny thing. If I can just jump in, when it comes to, I guess we'll call it, um, you know, banana republic currencies, everyone gets. You don't measure gains in terms of bolivars or Zimbabwe dollars or, you know, these sorts of things. Turkish lira, right? I mean, everyone gets attempting to use this as a unit of measure is fallacious. Mm. Um, when it comes to the dollar, the euro, the sterling, um, the people who know that about the bolivar and the Zimbabwe kind of forget that. And they say, well, gold went up. Well, did they? And, and then, they, then they say... Buy gold, gold's going to go up because the dollar is going to be wiped out. 
well, okay, is it gold going up or is the dollar being wiped out? And, you know, you can think of lots of analogies of, okay, imagine you throw a brick over the edge of a cliff and you throw put a GoPro camera on the brick and you say, it's the top of the cliff where you're standing. Are you going up? Everyone can see, no, it's just the GoPro camera happens to be in free fall. But you're getting people to invert that and say, okay, but the currency you're using to measure this is actually sinking. You know, it's actually in free fall. Maybe it's not quite free fall, but it's falling. Maybe it has a terminal velocity of only one meter per, per hour, but it's going down. Um, it's very difficult to get people to really click in their mind. And Keith, so, you mentioned this a lot with Bitcoin. You'll say, hey, you know, Bitcoin people, just kind of to really clear the air, do you really think that the value of all goods and services denominated in Bitcoin has suddenly had a hyper deflation today because the Bitcoin price changed? Probably not. You probably think that the price of Bitcoin has changed and, you know, not that of the money, everything around is inflated. That's one of those dichotomies where if I say, if I tweet and I say Bitcoiners claim that everything should be measured in Bitcoin and therefore I, I get 100 Bitcoiners on the thread saying, you're just straw manning us. I mean, no one's really saying that, Keith. And then if I post and I say, um, uh, you know, gold is the economic constant and Bitcoin, you know, goes up and down, then they turn around and say, no, 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 you should use Bitcoin as the measure and not gold. And uh, so um, I don't know if you guys know, but I, I debated um, Bitcoin Pierre, Pierre Rochard, uh, the Soho Forum, which is sponsored by the Reason Foundation, invited us to debate gold versus Bitcoin. And it was hosted at the Mises Institute um, you know, headquarters in Auburn, Alabama. And I started out, so I was pro, and the, the, the proposition was um, gold will continue to play an important monetary role, or whatever it was, in the next 100 years. And so being pro, I get to go first. And so I put up one chart. So it's the only chart I'm going to put up the whole time. And it was a price chart of gold over the last 5,000 years. And it was a flat line at one, labeled one ounce. The price of one ounce is, you know, one ounce. And I was like, no, no, this is not, haha, you know, some stupid tautology. This is saying that... Um, Gold has this unique property that the nth plus one ounce has the same value. People will accept it on the same terms as the nth ounce. And we've been, and the proof is we've been accumulating gold so far as we know. Actually, it's not 5,000 years, it's 6,500 years. Subsequent to that debate, I read about a find in a cave in Bulgaria of some warrior king that was buried with seven kilos of ceremonial gold that dates back to like 4,500 BC. Um, at least 6,500 years and probably longer than that, we've you know, been valuing gold. We've been accumulating it without any particular limit. I mean, think about wheat, think about copper, any other normal commodity. You know, if, the, if, if you accumulate a certain bit, it's called a glut. And then, um, you, you know, the price collapses until the glut is worked off. I mean, production stops because you can't make any money producing it anymore. Consumption is incentivized because you'd rather use that versus, so let's say the price of copper collapses. Well, you'll see more copper pipes and less plastic pipes until the, the copper price you know, recovers and then people go back to whatever they're doing. Uh, but in gold, that's not the case. No matter how much we accumulate, we're always happy to accumulate more. And uh, you know, the miners produce 3,000 plus tons a year of more gold to add to what we've already accumulated. And so the N plus one ounce is not worth less than the N ounce. The marginal utility of gold does not decline as the quantity goes up which is unique. There's no other 
there's no other thing whether you're talking about paper currency whether you're talking about shares in a company whether you're talking about any other commodity whether you're talking about bitcoin so i i created somewhat of a stir in the audience when i said satoshi when he designed bitcoin was terrified that bitcoin did not have this property and thus the most important thing for him was to set a hard cap at 21 million units mm-hmm. he didn't want to discover he didn't want to run the experiment would, would Bitcoin have a diminishing margin of utility or not? And obviously he believed that it would, but gold doesn't, and there and there's the proof. And that's why gold is an economic constant, because no matter how much anybody has, they're happy to have more on the same terms. And that's been that way globally, uh, or as, as markets converted about 5,000 years ago, it was not a global market, but as as gold was discovered, as gold was utilized, the markets converged, that property is, has always been you know, present for it. And that's what makes gold the economic constant. So it is appropriate to say, if you can point to a particular house in, uh, um, you know, Devon and say this house was 240, whatever, two ounces back in 1975. And then you go to that same house today, which is listed and it's 242 ounces, regardless of whatever happened to Sterling in the meantime, um, it is appropriate to say the, the value of the house hasn't changed. It's only the, paper currency with which most people attempt to measure it. And if the house did go up in gold terms from 142 ounces to 242 ounces, you can say, well, there, there's a net inflow of, I don't know, wealthy Londoners who are looking for a, uh, a seaside uh, you know, vacation home or whatever, Airbnb, I don't know, whatever people would be buying houses in Devon for. Um, but you, know, you could say that, yes, there's more demand for these than there was in the 1970s, and the price has gone up as measured objectively versus as measured in uh you know sterling yeah and it's so it's so clear when you look at the, the chart actually i mean the price does of course fluctuate in ounces of gold it goes up it goes down it goes up it goes down but the net effect over the 50 years is that it's gone sideways when you zoom out the, the whole thing's just gone sideways so it, it's clearly a different uh, mechanism to what is going on with houses priced in uh, U.S. dollars, which is just a, a, a line going from bottom left to top right, uh, much as anything priced in U.S. dollars is. It's a bottom left to top right chart, and it's in complete contrast to the um, the value of the house in in gold. It's it's exactly static going back fifty years, despite those fluctuations up and down. The fluctuations are very controlled, and as you say, they will be there because of um, particular. Uh, demands at particular points in time or particular drops in demand, not because um, the government is coming along and printing printing gold out of thin air, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. is, of course, what they're doing with pounds and euros and dollars. <laughs> so so what, one topic that always comes up in this gold you know, kind of thing is gold's going to go up more, equity's going to go up more. And I wrote an article, I should probably refresh it, Ben, I don't know if you remember the one, it's probably eight years ago or something, it was like way pre-COVID. And it was looking at that issue now, assuming that gold is the you know, economic constant. To say that gold is going up more than shares basically is saying that shares are losing value. That's not something anybody should be wishing for. I mean, if you want to live in modern civilization, you shouldn't be wishing for the entire industrial base to be degrading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, a, a successful company is going up in money terms, or should be. And if it isn't, you know, there's much greater problems. And, you know, it gets back to, I, th- I think a lot of people say this, not just me, but hey, gold bugs, be careful what you wish for. I mean, if gold is $20,000 an ounce, you, you may feel you're rich, but you may be living in a society where, you know, if anybody knew you had that gold, they would kill you for it. And 
you can afford to buy a Ferrari, but you wouldn't be driving around because they would trash it, you know. Yeah, like, I mean, look at look Ferrari at Lila and the Boulevard, right? Like in bol- Boulevard terms, gold has done incredibly well. But I can guarantee you anyone living in that country would much prefer that the currency or gold was much lower and their currency much more stable. So yeah, I want to imagine driving a, uh, a Ferrari around in Caracas. I mean, you're going to get carjacked at, at gunpoint. Like, you know, horrible, horrible things have been going on. Yeah, okay, sure, the gold's worth a lot in Bolivars, but is that the world you want to be in? Right. So, guys, I want to end the podcast with some rapid-fire questions. There are a bunch of disparate topics. We'll start with Patrick, we'll go to Kevin, and we'll end with Keith. Uh, I'll fire them out. You can give as long or as short as an answer to the question as you want. So, Patrick, we'll start with you. Swiss franc versus the dollar. Which do you think will depreciate relative to gold the most in 2024? Uh, 2024, goodness. Why'd you put such a short time frame like uh-huh. that? Long you can term- take the time frame if you like. I'm happy with well, that. Long, longer time frame, definitely the, the US dollar will depreciate more versus gold. According to, to the chart I've had now, I think I, I even put, put that on one of tweets uh, replies. 2024, it all depends if we have a market event. Because if we have a market event, GFC, the gold-silver ratio jacks up, the DXY jacks up. and um, But I have a, I'm not even sure about that because I, I even during the drawdowns, the Swiss franc is able to hold pretty much its... Um, it's uh, it's power versus gold, but it, it it does better when gold is outperforming the U.S. dollar. The Swiss franc holds its purchasing power better. But okay, for twenty twenty four, goodness, uh, right now with the technical chart breakdown breakdown we have for the the U.S. dollar versus the Swiss franc, I would say the Swiss franc is going to outperform the U.S. dollar, so it will hold its value better in gold than the U.S. dollar. That's un- un- yeah. Until that that breakdown is overridden, that's my final answer. Did I win? What's the prize? A gold coin? What I, I, I I hope. One day when I'm rich enough, I'll, I'll hand out gold coins for, for fun guesses. And okay, Kevin, fun guess. What do you think? Swiss franc, dollar, who's going to depreciate more relative to gold? I think everything Pat's just said there is 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 perfectly correct. I mean, it's not all, not all the time that Pat and I have exactly the same views, but um, I, I, I can't find anything in what Pat just said there that I, I particularly disagree with. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with exactly the same answer that Pat's given there. Keith, They're you might be an interesting one. Oh, sorry, Pat, <laughs> I am cheating. <laughs> yeah, so I certainly agree that um, in the next crisis, which I think the um, you know seeds of which are already baked into the cake, but the only question is timing, which I, I certainly couldn't uh, predict. It feels like a crisis is brewing for 2024, but sometimes these things can um, linger longer than you than you expect. Um, but overall, um, you know, as an economist looking at this and not looking at charts necessarily, but looking at a, a broader thing, um, I mean, all the paper currencies are dollar derivatives. Um, I mean, that's the nature of the dollar being the global reserve currency. All the other currencies are dollar derivatives. And so in the end, the derivatives can't survive the collapse of the underlying. But um, post-2014, the franc has increasingly become a euro derivative, which is a dollar derivative. And so increasingly, it'll be subject to the forces of the euro. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say 2024, but I think the trend of the broader trend and the broader forces, um, you know, on the, on the franc will be driving it down relative to the dollar. Okay, next rapid fire question. Which 
asset class do you think is more underrated? Patrick, we'll start with you. Precious metals or commercial real estate? Our goodness. It's so weird. I, I'm trying to flash back. I, I did a chart of real estate uh, priced in gold. And seriously, there, uh, there was a huge crash for uh, gold versus real estate. Real estate went up and now it's like at halfway mark. Honestly, I think right now, I'm not even looking at the charts. I, th I think it's like fair, like almost a historical fair value where it's either gold that's going to appreciate versus real estate or or the inverse. So right now, I think it's like it, it's a wash. It, there's room. It's a they're they're fair. They're fair value now. Like I'm just visualizing my head there, twenty or thirty, forty year chart that I've done in the past few months. So I think they're they're everything's perfectly balanced right now. I like it. A tie. Okay, Kevin, what do you think? Commercial real yeah. estate. I, I saw the chart that Pat was talking about, and he's right; it is pretty, pretty much fair value. But if you're looking at um, undervalue, um, I'm tempted to say silver, precious metals, gold is back at all-time highs, and it's looking to make a big move one way or the other. I mean, it's it's consolidating above two thousand um, dollars. It's it's got itself an opportunity to have a move up of seven or eight hundred dollars here. That would be the measured move, but. Uh, the gold to SPX ratio is giving us cause for concern. It's not breaking to the upside. And in fact, um, on a shorter time frame, it's uh, slightly breaking to the downside. Silver, anywhere below $25, is exceedingly good in inverted commas value. And you would expect that over the next several months to maybe 18 months, something like that, that silver will have its, its you know, its, its day in the sun and uh, and make that big move that everyone's waiting for to towards the $50 area and then um you know and then beyond that in years to come but the technical chart analysis shows that silver hasn't made that uh, critical breakout beyond the 26 to 28 level which is which is crucial um but undervalue and potential for a quick 100% move i would say silver um and gold's move perhaps somewhere of the order of maybe um 70% 60% when when the um breakout is is finally confirmed but we do need that gold to spx ratio to to really show signs of life at the moment capital is and those ratio charts by the way for people perhaps wondering what we're talking about with ratio charts it's just comparing one, one asset against another to track capital flows so if capital is flowing disproportionately towards stock markets then that's going to suck some of the life and some of the energy out of precious metals and you can you can watch these ebbs and flows between Things like even Bitcoin and uranium. You can do a Bitcoin to uh, uranium ratio and you can see the way capital ebbs and flows between those two markets. It doesn't mean they're particularly correlated in any meaningful way. It just means that you can spot when one market is outperforming the other and when capital is disproportionately flowing into one market versus the other. Uh, and gold to SPX is giving us some some headaches at the moment. It, it's, it's a little bit of a, a concern and we won't be happy really until it gets above 0 0.5 on the gold to SPX ratio. Keith, I want to send it your way. Most underrated asset class, do you feel in real estate or do you think maybe the precious metals are underrated right now? I think, I mean, if we're talking commercial real estate, mm. you got to break it down in different sectors. So I think warehouses may do pretty well because there's a lot of logistics stuff going on uh, you know, for more and more consumer, let's say package delivery. But the flip side of that is retail, which I think is headed for a train wreck um, and um, office space. So here I am, you know, Monetary Metals headquarters. We're in um, a building here called the Scottsdale Galleria, which had been retail at one time, but didn't work. It was completely redone as a giant commercial office 
uh, you know, thing. And um, it's mostly dark. I mean, the parking lot is almost entirely empty. How long can this go? I think right now there's still major, major corporations that are tenants that just haven't figured out um, how much to downsize their footprint. Like, what's the reality of how many people want to come to the office versus work at home? But when all that gets sorted through, the need for commercial, you know, like office real estate is surely 50% at most of what it was uh, in 2019. And um, I, I don't think people really are grappling with what that means. I mean, all these, uh, you know, the owners of the properties are all in debt, which means they're all going to default. The bank will become the, you know, the banks will become the owners and that will cause huge amounts of distress in the banking sector, as you can imagine. And then when that gets sold back to the, uh, you know, to the market, the new developers will own these things at a much lower price. That might be a great time to buy in, but I can't imagine owning this asset right now with that uh, sort of Damocles hanging over your head. Now the charts may not say that this may not be imminent. The um, the Fed certainly and the Treasury and the regulators certainly have lots and lots of tricks up their sleeves, lots of ways of sprouting tentacles to plug the holes in the dike extend and pretend, kick the can down the road, whatever term you want to use. Um, but there's there's a train wreck coming versus precious metals, which I think are um, you know underappreciated, under-talked about. It's not at all like it was in 2009 to 2011, the last time we had price over $2,000. Everybody was talking about it. It was the proverbial, you get in a, a taxi and the shoeshine boy is telling you hot gold tips. Nowadays, it's like under-mentioned, under-discussed, barely appreciated, and here we are, you know, $2,000. Um, but, you know, the main thing is, if you own precious metals, you're not dependent on a counterparty to perform. If you own, you know, any kind of security, or for that matter, commercial real estate, you're dependent on a tenant to actually, you know, make enough money to pay the rent. And um, if your tenant can't, uh, you know, if you own a security and the, and the party on the other side can't perform, then, um, you know, what's the value of the thing you own? Well, it can go to zero. And so owning precious metals with no counterparty risk versus owning something with a counterparty on the other side. Again, I can't say it's 2024. I can't say it's 2025, although my gut is telling me it's relatively imminent. Um, but when that happens, uh, you'd much rather own gold or, or silver. I, I think I agree that there's... Uh, upside in silver relative to gold. I think the gold-silver ratio at some point is going to want to snap back to its mean. A mean reversion, you know, means not quite a double, but, you know, call it a, a 60 to 80% gain in silver relative to gold. So um, obviously that would be a big move in the silver price. Okay, final rapid-fire question. Patrick, we'll start with you. You get one idea. You get to completely wipe off the face of the earth no one knows about it. No one's ever heard about it ever again. People were thinking, oh my gosh, you know, uh, Patrick's the, the dumbest guy ever. You can just wipe that idea completely off the face of the earth. Any idea you get to pick, what would you choose? It's uh, trading related, anything? Anything. Something that it's like uh, the invention of lie there. Like nobody knows how to lie. Yeah, totally. Wow, maybe that's a good one there. Uh, goodness, it's. I'm not sure I would eliminate anything. Seriously, it's because... That's what I understand. If because if I debalance something, then what I think is good now might not be there, mm. right? It's like I'm going to be affecting the, the balance of everything, the butterfly effect or anything. So, I probably have to say I'd 
for better or worse with i would just probably just keep everything like it is now there it's um i don't know what what the philosophy you could attach to that there but Knowledge is like, good, I, I guess yeah often in my life i've seen like ah oh, the kids they could have done that and then they would change but i look at myself there's these tiny decisions that happen that lead me today that i'm talking to you guys and if i would have removed the, one of those things i'd like Kevin's my worst enemy, like in an alternate universe, right? So, Patrick, we wouldn't want you anywhere but here on the Gold Exchange podcast. Kevin, um, we're happy that in this universe, you guys are friends and that you're on the show. What's an idea you might say, you know what, we could live without that? (laughs) Um, Social media, there you go. Get rid of social media. That's a a double-edged sword that um, comes back to haunt us all the time. Seriously, I mean, social media is a great thing, but it's also um, a breeding ground for some real nasty, you know, almost like evil people out there on the internet. The internet is, and social media is, um, I don't know, I, 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 I was, you know, I'm old enough to remember times before before internet, before social media, and I, I kind of hark back to that sometimes where people, you know, really had to, ah, I don't know, converse more, talk more, read more, spend more family time. It's so, so, so many distractions. But then, like Pat said, you take 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 it away and, butterfly effect and you, you know you can you can end up causing more back that you guys wouldn't be here on the gold of change if it weren't exactly exactly so there you go and some people might be very pleased about that so they'll be they'll be saying yeah thank goodness for that so yeah i it's hard to 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 think of something that you would definitely want to to get rid of but uh you know social media or at least the bad side of social media if i could if you could have social media without uh without all the the, the the bad stuff that goes with it and the damage that it does that's that would be that would be an ideal world in a way but it, it ain't gonna happen is it you, you have to accept the bad with the good well all the people who are awesome on social media never post a nasty comment and just love uh charting gold precious metals you know who to follow uh keith let's go with you what's an idea maybe you want to say you know we, we could probably go without that as soon as you asked the question i thought it's obvious what i want to say to that which is this pernicious idea that monetary policy can make anything better that by screwing around with the definition of a kilogram to to benefit sellers or buyers of, of products or screwing around with the definition of a meter to somehow make building engineering or construction better screwing around with the economic unit to make the economy better this idea of of monetary policy and central planning if we can get rid of that yeah there'd be a lot of ripples a lot of butterflies but all of them good <laughs> In a much better world. Guys, I want to thank you so much. Before we end, where can people find more of your work? Patrick, we'll start with you and then jump to Kevin. North, Northstarbadcharts.com. But uh, on Twitter, it's a wild, wild west, guys. So if you want uh, all, all the fun stuff, go on Twitter. If you want more, Northstarbadcharts.com. Kevin, I know the people are going to love you on social media. Where can they find you? <laughs> yeah, it's at Northstarcharts on, uh, on Twitter. And uh, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn as well. North Star Charts, and as, as Pat said, the uh, the same website, of course, because we are uh, business partners. <laughs> Guys, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Gold Exchange podcast. It was really fun, yeah. uh, and we'll make sure we'll check the charts, but we're pretty sure we're going to have to see you again. That's right. Good stuff. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Really appreciate it. We're so meeting you. you guys. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and our gold financing simplified, 
reliable financing, denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.